Welcome to the Digital Workflow Dentistry Podcast Series. We help dentists adapt, adopt, and advance in the world of dental technology. For more information about upcoming lectures, webinars, and podcasts, please go to our website, www.digitalworkflowdentist.com, at Instagram, at Digital Workflow Dentistry. Good afternoon, dental internet world. My name is Dr. Vishal Sharma, and I'm here once again alongside my friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Parchewski. Mike, we have a fellow University of Saskatchewan grad, and as the old saying goes, how many Saskies does it take to run a podcast? I'm going to leave that answer to you and let you introduce our guest today. Well, I think that's several. I think it goes back to the how many does it take to put the light bulb in or something as well. Yeah, I think it's actually how to run a combine, but nonetheless. That's it, yeah. 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 Well, welcome to Colin Diener, who's joining us from the uh, metropolis of Edmonton, and we're we're pleased to have him. I hear their weather is similar to ours, erratic and and mostly wet. Um, Colin um, actually is a good colleague of mine. Uh, we are both uh, classmates at the University of Saskatchewan, and um, you know Colin was always a leader at the university and uh, has stayed that way coming out of school. And um, uh, he's also been a proponent uh, with the Alberta Society of Dental Anesthesia on uh, keeping sedation rights for the general dentist. Uh, welcome, Colin. Uh, great to have you. Uh, how's your day today? How, are, how was your practice today? Uh, today was a busy day. It was, went as planned, fortunately. But um, my wife's overseas competing in the World Masters, so I've got a house full of kids and uh, not enough arms. But it's going well. Nice, nice. So speaking of not enough uh, arms, Colin, you have a very interesting uh, practice. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your practice uh, and what you do on a daily and weekly basis? Yeah, sure. So I'm a general dentist. Uh, I completed a one-year GPI residency at the University of Saskatchewan uh, post-five-year program. And our practice is, it's a, it's a general practice. It has a referral component, which is makes up about 70% of the billings. And then a general practice component with two other docs, uh, one of whom is also a U of S grad, albeit about 12 years uh, behind myself. But um, we're a non-hospital surgical facility, which means, you know, we can do and are accredited to do full general anesthesia. So we're treated like a hospital outside of a hospital and different regulations for that sort of thing. And, and so as a result, um, our practice is sort of comprehensive in that the things that we do and, you know, go from simple restorative dentistry all the way to a bit more complicated uh, reconstructions, be it bone, implant, et cetera. Nice. Now, Colin, um, I know, um, you know, because I've seen some of your education work and, um, of course, you know, your name comes up often with the implant reps. You, you've also built yourself, um, you know, quite a legacy on the implant dentistry side. Um, as a general dentist, especially with, you've built this coming out of dental school quite early. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey to being come sort of the, an implant go-to guy up in Edmonton. How did you do that as a general dentist? For, for a lot of us, we, we, we end up, implants are definitely part of our practice, but it's hard, we're, we're always jammed with all the other things. And, and, and I, I find it, unless you, you're a specialist where you're close to one procedure, um, it's hard to build that certain portion. Just tell us a bit about your journey uh, to becoming that the implant guru as what I tell other people when, I, when I'm when i talking about you. 
Well, I appreciate that. I, I don't know that I would refer to myself as a guru, but I, I've done a few cases in my now 20 years this year in Alberta. Um, I took a bit of an unconventional route. Again, after I completed the GPR, I, I sort of sought out an individual in the Edmonton area that had a, a well-known reputation and had a, a basically a full-time implant practice. I was able to um, sort of get in his good graces and became an associate and then, then a partner there for about 12 years. So really, I didn't do general dentistry for 12 years after I completed my residency. And really, all I was exposed to was, was full-time implants. Then that individual was close to retiring. And that's when I thought, and I saw the opportunity to build the, the non-hospital surgical facility and sort of up the types of cases we could do. Um, not long after I opened Nouveau Dentals, the name of the practice. We're actually located in St. Albert, where we live. Um, and then I was recruited by the university to teach implants at the undergraduate and um, general practice residency level. And then hopefully, actually, in the next uh, calendar year, that's also going to change to the perial grad level, which, which is unique for a general dentist to be recruited, I think, for, for that kind of instruction at a university level. Very exciting. So, Colin, how much time do you spend uh, teaching with the university? For me, it's just literally half a day to a day a week. Um, any more than that, as any wet-fingered dentist knows, and the bills don't get paid. So uh, it's enough to kind of, you know, nurture my referral base, which has become just by virtue of what I'm doing there a bit younger, which I don't mind. And um, it's nice to, you know, get to interact with younger versions of ourselves and and see what kind of shenanigans uh, we got up to. And it's a bit refreshing, so it's fun. Um, but yeah, that, that's the route I took. And it's certainly not a conventional road, mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, I kind of did things backwards in a way, rather than building a skill set, you know, with general dentistry and surgery and then kind of working your way up. I kind of started there and then kind of worked my way back and, and kind of learned certain things later, like after I established some expertise in, in implant dentistry. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you have a strong referral network. I imagine some of that would have been a carryover from Dr. Vasco's back in the day. And of sure. course that's helped you grow your practice, but besides that referral network and, and uh, networking at the university and establishing relationships with um, soon to be dentists, how else are you marketing your practice, Colin? And how are you marketing it for your associates who may be concentrating more on uh, general dentistry at Nouveau Dentistry? You know, like there's lots of tools out there. Everyone knows as a dentist, you get hit up for all sorts of marketing, be it print or online mechanisms. For what's worked well for us is really a lot of word of mouth, both with patients, but especially with dentists and dental specialists. So, you know, I, I sometimes call our office the, de the specialist dentist. So, you know, we have a lot of specialists that, and there are significant others that come to us for their treatment, which is interesting because, again, they could just as easily see one of their specialist colleagues, and that doesn't always happen. Um, you know, it's just trying to do a good job and excellent. Uh, our goal is excellence at the end of the day. It's not necessarily profit. And once you kind of get beyond that, uh, I, I think the work speaks for itself and then just people hear and talk and, you know, they see maybe a front anterior case you did and it turned out really well. And, you know, who did that? Obviously, conversely, can go the other way. You know, you don't want your work on someone's, you know, front of their face and that's a walking walk billboard. That can be dangerous to your, to your practice for sure. So, and one other thing too is, you know, I've done a little bit of advanced education with 
uh, the American Academy of Implant Dentistry. I've done my Diplomate Fellow accreditation, which is something I would recommend if you're really interested in increasing your skill set. This is sort of, you know, a, a, a protocol that forces you to present, to treat a certain way, and to be tested by your peers and other specialists. And so your mantra of, uh, of excellence, I, I certainly like that. How do you instill that value or the set of beliefs um, and guiding principles in the uh, younger associates uh, who've been working with you and, and get them to buy into that concept? Well, first of all, if they're working with us, we already have a pretty good idea that that is their their founding foundation for their practice. You know, we, we have a pretty rigid, we only have two other dentists in the mm-hmm. practice and they're both really excellent clinicians. So one of them, I had the opportunity to actually teach at an undergraduate level. So I got to see him for several years develop and, you know, relative to his classmates, it was fairly easy to see, okay, this is someone that could be a, a, a good addition to our, our group practice. Um, for them, you know, it's again getting involved. It's interesting doing general anesthesia cases, you know, when you get to work with so-called real doctors and, and real medically compromised patients. And you get to see all these really interesting tools and techniques to make your job easier and, and give you a better end result. So um, that's one thing that attracts them. We're in a nice part of the city, of course. You know, heated underground parking doesn't hurt in minus 40 winters. Um, but those are just like, obviously, the, the little things. The big thing is just, I think, just being associated with the practice, with the residents that, that rotate through our practice as part of their formal curriculum, which again, I, I would argue is a fairly unique situation. I can't think of too many universities, and, and if you ever hear of one, let me know by all means, but that have accredited uh, specialist programs who as part of their formal curriculum actually go to a general dentist's office. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that exists out there. Have you ever heard of anything like that? No, it's interesting. No, I think it's, and I think it's, I think it's important um, because, you know, for a general dentist, uh, I don't know about you, Vish, but a lot of the post-grad work that I've done in implants, um, you know, there's a there's a big push that, you know, to, to kind of compress the scope of a general dentist and almost to strike the fear of God into them. Mm-hmm. And I find that when you've got guys like yourself that are general dentists um, that are that are, you know, performing at that high level, um, you know, people can look up to that and say, you know, this is another general dentist who's taken a focus and who's done it. And I can aspire to that. And, and they're, they're looking at me saying, you can do it. And they're giving me um, the tools and the mindset and, and the ability to say, hey, this can be done. Um, as opposed to, hey, you know what, um, you can do this and this, but but don't ever do this and, and, and watch for these patients and don't do that. And so I find there's a bit of a negativity often towards the, the general dentist. Don't get me wrong. I'm being a, a very generalist um, in speaking, but um, it has been more the tone that way. Whereas when you get a general dentist who's passionate about um, these types of things and the same in ortho and stuff, you get a general dentist that's passionate in ortho and boy, they, they open up the doors to people's minds. It's good. Yeah. It- you know, protectionism in any medical discipline is alive and well, and, and, and none less than implant dentistry. But the number one thing is, and I tell this to both patients and the residents, the certificate you have on your wall doesn't determine how the case is going to go. The tissue and the way you manipulate it and manage it and treat it and plan it and execute, again, 
that's you know between the ears and and in your hands the certificate doesn't matter some of the best work i've seen have been from actual general dentists some of the worst work i've seen has been from certified specialists it's the individual and their training and their dedication to the final outcome that's what actually determines how the case turns out and that goes for ortho like you said mm-hmm. crosso anything it doesn't really matter it's just do you have the drive to a know what is excellent you know what i mean like how do you even know what excellence is until you see it? It's, it sounds kind of like a silly thing to say, but we all might look at a certain type of end result and say, well, that's a great result. But what are we comparing that to? Once you actually sort of find that path and define what excellence is to you and what is truly excellent, that gives you a bit of a roadmap of, of where you want to be. And then the pieces kind of you know fall into place if, if, if you follow the right, uh, right individuals, right mentors. And, and I think anyone can get there. I'm living proof of it. Um, am I am I done on this journey? Absolutely not. I'm learning all the time. I was just at a I was just giving a lecture in San Francisco three weeks ago for the AEIB, and there was this OMFS from San Francisco himself. His name is Dr. Chin. He gave one of the most eye-opening, well, actually the best lecture I've ever seen in 20, 20 years of practice. And completely changed the way I look at bone reconstruction and regeneration. Uh, after seeing this gentleman lecture. And so it just shows you even at, at, at my stage of implant knowledge and bone growth, this individual, how he approaches it and his embryological positioning on it totally blew my mind. So tons of learning, no one stops learning. We all continue to try and get better, try different things um, with safety in mind, of course. Well, I know Mike is going to have some questions for you, Colin, about uh, lecturing and, and asking on some uh, tips and tricks with uh, implant dentistry. But of course, our podcast is Digital Workflow Dentistry. Can you uh, tell the listeners how you leverage technology to get that excellent end result that you're always aspiring to? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you come to Nouveau Dental, we are definitely not the office, I would argue, that is full digital workflow. I've, I've done some of those. For certain cases, it works well. For certain other things, in my hands anyway, not as good. Um, but what I will say is, is for anyone getting into implants, there's certain basics that are required. Uh, number one, CVCT, I would say for 90 plus percent cases, it should basically be used. And even the other cases where you don't have to use it, you probably should have it anyway. And the reason I say that is because if the case goes sour, and this goes for any case, the committee or the, the, the retained expert by, by the college, and in, in this case it would be in Alberta, the first thing they're going to look at is what was your workup? What was your workflow? And if there's an absence of CT, that would be a bit of a glaring thing. I think the expert would probably sort of be questioning, you know, and, and this goes for some of the other committees I serve on, but we basically, you know, if you see something glaringly obvious, you start to kind of form an opinion. So just by having it, and I'm not talking about unnecessary radiation exposure. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about a lot of information. And we all know with CBCT and especially with, different volumes that we can control. The radiation is actually quite nominal, especially compared to a medical CT. But, you know, that would be one piece of digital um, tooling. Every Everyone doing this kind of treatment should likely have. Uh, the other one, you know, guided cases, or at least partially guided for any, I would say, high lip line aesthetic zone case, uh, an absolute must if you haven't done less than, we'll say, 200 similar cases. If you've done less than that, do it guided or at least pilot drill guided. 
doesn't have to be fully guided, but that'll get you on the right path at least. And it'll get you in the prosthetic sort of um, volumetric work site and, and emergence that you want to be at, as opposed to just winging it. And then, you know, now you got a problem. Yeah. Now, um, so let's go on to what's happening on your lecture side. Um, you, so, you know, we, we were chatting and, you know, it sounds like you've been lecturing more and more, um, not just at the school, but beyond that. So tell us what's happening on the lecture front and what some of your current topics are. Well, you know, the, the way the lecturing works is, you know, a particular society or, or academy or whatever hears or, or sees about a given lecture and they contact you and they say, we want we have this uh, you know, topic that we'd like covered. Are you comfortable covering it? So my lectures will range anywhere from, again, the digital kind of workup uh, to, I do a lot more osseous reconstruction, uh, especially autogenous grafting these days. And, and some of the aesthetic zone cases. I also have a series for trauma, high energy trauma cases that we reconstruct. But, um, you know, a lot of times that, that's probably what I would say my, my better case selection and lecture material is, but it depends on what they're looking for. So I don't come in and just say, this is what I'm going to lecture on and you must accept this or, or else. But uh, and, and again, sometimes you can kind of massage a given lecture topic to more meet what they want, but also sort of, you know, better define what your wheelhouse is. And I know it's the summer uh, session, so there's not a lot of uh, education going on, but do you have anything booked currently for the uh, fall or winter season? Honestly, I think I might be doing the Denturist Association in the fall again. I've done that a few times, but it's uh, I'm, I'm probably going to be on the main podium for AAID, not this year, but the following year. Um, and really, aside from what I do at the university to the residents and the students, uh, it kind of comes up periodically. But as of right now, I'm, I'm a free agent and I'm taking all offers all <laughs> and, and cash offers too. Any, yeah. any cash anyone has, I'm happy to speak. <laughs> you speak for dollars. That's Mike's yeah. business philosophy as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always like at lectures when you have to now make disclosures. And I always say, well, I don't have anything to disclose, but I'm taking offers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you answered the questions on uh, guided versus non-guided. I like the fact that you put a number on that and and discussed the uh, benefit of CBCT. Um, any thoughts on per, uh, current protocols on peri-implantitis uh, prevention and implant maintenance protocols, Colin? Yeah, I mean, it's a big problem, as we know. We, we've sort of seen this tidal wave come in, especially when uh, back in the probably early 2000s, we'll say the transition from screw-retained restorations was made to cementable restorations. And uh, we know a fellow by the name of Wilson did a, a pretty much a landmark study on this and found that 80% of all periodontitis cases, uh, if they were involving a cementable prosthetic, was involving excess cement. So um, we've now seen since about the late 2000s, uh, a transition away from cementable prosthetics. Obviously, there's certain anatomical um, bone morphologies that force you to do cementable. But now with, you know, these angulated screw channels and abutments, we can even avoid that by and large. So for periimplantitis, it's a multifactorial cause, everything from the type of implant to the type of bone, um, the type of soft tissue that's supporting the implant, the load, parafunction, uncontrolled diabetes, even penicillin allergy. You know, we have a, a known uh, number of 3% higher failure rates on implants for people that have penicillin allergies. Why? Nobody knows. But these are, you know, it all kind of goes into a, a pot, if you will, of, of possible risk factors. But what I will say is 
you know, ways to avoid periimplantitis. And then I'll, I'll chat if you want just briefly about how we manage it, but mm-hmm. ways to avoid it. Well, obviously your osseous uh, bone platform is going to set the foundation for, for everything. In my hands and my observations, autogenous bone basically reigns supreme. So you can use GBR and all these different uh, allograft materials. And they all look really good on x-rays or can look really good on x-rays and they can seem reasonable at time of placement. But there's a big debate whether they're actually truly vascularized and more importantly, how they last over the long term, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 years, especially post-loading. So, you know, some of these cases, you'll see some lectures show amazing particulate vertical GBR rebuilds of bone, but a lot of them don't really show you much after five years. And there's a reason for that. Typically what we observe in implant dentistry years six to eight if an implant's going to unwind or unzip, is that's that's when you're going to see it happen. Other than the initial uh, integration period, so you know those particular graphs for some of the tougher reconstructions, they just don't hold up as well, quite frankly. So that's the hard tissue. The soft tissue, of course, we want lots of keratinized tissue. Now that's also a controversial subject. Does it increase the risk of periimplantitis? Probably, actually, not based on current evidence. Does it improve oral hygiene and the ability for the patient to maintain said implant and prosthetic? Absolutely. And as we know, if they can keep it clean, there that's one risk factor that we've now, a big one, taken away from this periimplantitis issue. Uh, of course, occlusal design, prosthetic design, again, screw retained versus cementable. Those are all key factors. Night guards, you know, Carl Misch used to lecture on this extensively. He basically assumed everyone had parafunction. Every implant patient had parafunction, whether they have it now or whether they had it in the past or whether they're going to have it. They're one, you know, bad relationship away from having uncontrolled parafunction. So at the end of the day, everyone's got parafunction, even us dentists sitting here uh, talking about dentistry. So we're in that Um, As far as how to treat it, Interesting things on the horizon that are currently being developed and currently just gotten re- released. Uh, there's a new product out there called a Galvo Surge. I don't know if you've heard of it. Nobel is one of the distributors. I've been looking at this technology for about the last four years, been very intrigued by it. And basically what it is, is just a low amperage current that's put through an implant. It doesn't matter on the brand as long as it's a titanium implant or alloy. And it Based on the research, and again, this is a little bit debatable because of the source of the research, but it seems to nearly completely sterilize the infected surface or the colonized surface of the implant, which then opens the possibility, and this is kind of the holy grail for periimplantitis cases, is of reintegration. So if we can get a deintegrating implant to reintegrate, we've potentially bought another, again, six to eight years before we have a similar problem. So that's being actively uh, treated in my office right now. And I'm currently in chat with the Perio uh, graduate department at the U of A to develop one of the first studies clinically that we're going to have the residents work on. So that's exciting. And, you know, if it works or if it at least improves some of the case outcomes, everybody benefits, especially the patients. Nice. Now, you mentioned uh, it's a great summary um, oh. and some great information. You mentioned the uh, autogenous bone being the 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 best choice. So, uh, for the listeners out there, what are where do you typically harvest and and for the the junior dentist, um, where are some of the easier spots to get that autogenous bone? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, I mean, autogenous bone obviously just means from the patient. So, typical areas that we consider harvesting could be maxillary tuberosity, could be lower symphyseal area. 
could be mandibular ramus, ascending ramus, could be iliac crest, so the hip, could be cranial, um, you know, skull bone. Uh, for the average dentist, I think we can all agree intraoral is going to be where you're going to go. Uh, what I can tell you is based on good data, and especially from the ITI consensus uh, paper, I don't have it cited, but it's a couple of Swedish guys. Um, ascending ramus bone is probably the best monoblock, and it resorbs the least, and that's attractive. That's one thing about uh, iliac crest bone, and I used to see this in my residency. We'd, you know, we'd harvest these giant pieces of iliac bone. But you'd go back 10 months later and, you know, 40 to 50, 60% sometimes, which is gone. So you want a piece of bone that is, is kind of, for the most part, be autogenous. It can be revascularized via angiogenesis. And the best part about ascending ramus, which is really attractive, and I do lecture on this a bit, is that it regrows. So just imagine a bank, be it money or bone, that, you know, six, eight months later, it's completely regenerated its entire form cortical and cancellous, and you can go back to it if you want. The iliac doesn't do that, neither does the calvaria, neither does the symphyseal, actually neither does anywhere. The maxillary tuberosity, as we all know, very fatty bone, not really great. There's almost no cortex to it. So it would be a good um, bone that I sometimes use if I'm gonna do a 50-50, uh, you know, bio-ocytogenous sort of sandwich grafts, but not, not as your cortical plate, not, not, not appropriate. So ascending ramus is, is the go-to. That's a great answer and a lot of uh, really interesting insight from that perspective. It's certainly going to uh, be a paradigm shift for me and uh, require some more investigation now, uh, Mike. Um, Colin, we'd love to hear your take on immediate implants. When do you avoid it? Uh, which cases do you find it most effective for? Uh, give us your opinion, please. Yeah, uh, well, again, unless you've done a few hundred anterior cases not immediately, I would probably advise you stay out of the aesthetic zone to do it. And the main reason is, is when they, when they don't go well, and if you've got a high lip line patient, you're looking at a compound defect that might not actually be correctable surgically. So um, for me, I stay away from molars. I'm not interested in that. I saw that done for years and years and always saw those problems with it. A lot of the anatomical reasons for it. The, basically, the aesthetic zone is where, in my practice, I do it. So three to three, I don't do bicuspids. Um, the main reason is, again, I, I don't, if you ever have tried to drill a hole in wood into an existing hole, which is really what an immediate mm -hmm. implant is, if you think about it, it's quite difficult, be it on a piece of wood, which is inanimate, doesn't bleed, doesn't move, doesn't say, ouch. Um, to do that on a human being and actually do it in a prosthetic position that's going to give you an optimal result. So the bottom line is if I can't do it predictably, I don't recommend that a bunch of people do uh, just because I've been exposed to this a lot. And I've, I've had my own failures, of course, and I've looked at them critically and said, well, what, what did I do wrong here? So immediate implant placement, I would say upper aesthetic zone. Now there's a difference between immediate placement and immediate load. I almost never immediately load. They can wear a customized healing abutment. They can wear a customized flipper with no pressure on the placed implant. Do not put a permanent crown on there or even a temporary crown immediately. Micro motion is our enemy. If you put anything, any sort of motion on your implant, you risk deintegration and you risk failure. And then you've got an even bigger problem to fix. And as an old friend of mine, a proselyte friend in Montreal likes to say, his name's Mike Kennedy, by the way, so I can cite him. Uh, dentistry is only expensive the second time around. So we want to avoid that first failure and immediate placement 
is doable in the right hands. Um, like I said, you have to have an acceptable thickness of labial um, cortical bone if you want, and you need to have some uh, height, apical height of bone in order to get that primary fixation. If you're placing your implant into the nose of the patient, probably not a great immediate case. And um, also, you know, deep bite patients, anyone with a real deep bite, you're going to, you know, let that implant sit for, you know, four to six months at least before you start loading it provisionally. So deep bite patients, really be careful. Immediate loading in my hands, really upper few to three. And, and those are only in fairly experienced hands. Otherwise, just do it staged. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great information. Um, and, uh, you know, Colin, we're, we're getting close to our time here. And, um, you know, we could kind of sit here all day and just chat implants and learn from you. Uh, so we really appreciate it. And we really appreciate your expertise on this. And it's great to hear about your, your practice that you've built, um, really your, your passion and your, your dream come true as I, as I see it, uh, that you finally mm -hmm. realized up there in St. Albert. And it's very impressive and, um, and definitely, um, still gives me that, I got to call you the implant guru. So, <laughs> so again, thank you very much. Bish, anything uh, you want to add there? Well, besides Colin actually sitting on a yoga mat right now, which reinforces the guru aspect, that was a fantastic uh, um, podcast for us, Colin. You packed in a, an immense amount of very useful information in 30 minutes. So kudos to you. Look forward to connecting in person and we can all drink a Pilsner beer back to our Saskatchewan roots. Yeah, I agree. I'll second that motion. And again, it was my pleasure, guys. Great to see you both. Thanks, thank Colin. You. Appreciate that. Thanks, take Thanks care. Thanks, everyone. And for everybody out there, thank you for watching. Uh, please uh, click like and subscribe. Uh, follow us at on our Instagram, at Digital Workflow Dentistry. Our website, www.digitalworkflowdentist.com. And links to upcoming lectures and podcasts will be there. Take care. <laughs>